lesson is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, beginning at verse 21. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, where the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them, and went on his way. Let's pray. Bless, O oh Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Pastors, I think, understand something of this scripture's difficulty. Because a pastor's homies are really, really proud and pleased that you came out of them. Your parents are proud. Your church is proud. The hometown says we did good. And those homies have some pretty big expectations. I will never forget the day my mother called to say that one of my sisters was having difficulty in her marriage and I was to fix it. <laughs> Imagine her pleasure when I announced I couldn't be my sister's therapist. There's something about our education in which the family then begins to assume that at graduation you got some kind of a magic wand and the right words for all occasions. On my father's deathbed, my three other sisters and I were caring for him and it, he was lingering. And you know how in hospice they always tell you to give them permission to go on. And all of them looked at me and said, you tell him. (laughs) 
I cannot tell you how many times I have had family call and say, would you call or talk to? In the hopes that if there was something that could be done, I'd at least be there to try. Oh, I wish that it worked that easily. That's pretty much how our reading starts out this morning. Jesus has come home. He's preaching to the hometown crowd. They go, oh, we've known him since he was this big and we're so proud. Why isn't that Joseph's boy? He was just a carpenter, but look what he's had come out of him. And look at him now. He's learned such authority in his preaching. He was born to this, I tell you, born to do it. By all accounts, it's a beautiful scene. So what goes wrong? How does this tender little homecoming gathering turn to suddenly so ugly? Was it Jesus' tone or his recognition that what they had witnessed as miracle lacked the understanding of his mission and his purpose? You see, Jesus was not coming to do signs and wonders for their sake. They were simply illustrations that the message that he bore was gift from God. And now in this setting, he knows that they're going to expect these signs and wonders and the message, well, it could do this. So he says, doubtless you're going to look at me and say, doctor, cure yourself. And you'll probably want me to do here what you've heard I did all over Capernaum, that land so full of Gentiles. Well, guess what? No prophet is accepted in their hometown. And when the prophets of old came and did miracles and wonders, more often than not, it was to your enemies. I can't help you. Then he rolls out a couple of Old Testament examples of having been in a land where there were all kinds of starving widows and only one got helped. All kind of lepers in Syria and only one of them got cured. It sounds like Jesus is picking a fight. But it's so much more than that. He hasn't come just to do these signs and miracles. He's come to bring a message. And that message is of God's saving love, redeeming love. The signs are only pointers to his global mission. And for this message to become reality, there's going to need to be some change in their expectations. The poor, the least, the last, the outcast have got to be included. The home crowd doesn't get it. Why aren't, aren't we the chosen one? Isn't that what the scriptures have told us for generations? You mean we're going to be left out of this good stuff? So Jesus becomes very direct. 
drives his point home, and this time they get it. So clearly, in fact, they're ready to get him. God favors Syria, not Israel. Well, that's heresy. And you know what they do with heretics. They want him gone in the most permanent of ways because God's Jesus, Jesus is God rather, is coming to all the wrong people. Perhaps it's no wonder that those gathered in the synagogue there in Nazareth who just moments before were so proud and loving now are ready to hurl him off a cliff. While their extreme reaction and seems violent, it's certainly one way of assuring that you would no longer have to hear what you don't want to hear. Now, while you and I may not seek to utterly destroy the life of those who speak what we would rather not hear, I know that I, that we, have other ways of turning off voices that bring unwanted perspectives, news, or insight. Back in 2008, Chris Jordan did a number of pictorial illustrations of statistics. He made these statistics into art, and his first picture looked like a bunch of industrial pipes that were all twisted around or a, a bad interchange on a highway system. But when you backed up, what you saw was a picture of plastic cups, millions of them, which are not, or which are used by the airline industry every day. In fact, four million cups a day are used by the airline industry and none of them reused or recycled. He made a picture out of that and the building that he pictured had the Statue of Liberty next to it and it looked like a toy because the cups equaled four million and they were 42 stories high. That's a day. Then he has a piece on addiction. It's a painting by Vincent Van Gogh that Van Gogh did in the 1800s. It's a skull, a skeleton that's smoking a cigarette. He created this picture out of 400,000 cigarette boxes because it represents the number of people that die every year from smoking. In contrast, he says, you know, on 9-11, when the country was horrified, horrified, we lost 3,000 people, but every day, every day, there's 1,100 that die day after day after day. This is 10 years ago. What have we done? We invented a new way to do it, by vaping. He has a picture of Vicodin, 213,000 pieces of Vicodin, which number the hospital emergency room visits each year attributed to the abuse of painkillers and prescription drugs. 
One third of all overdoses are prescription. Ten years ago, ten years ago, how are we doing now? Jordan shares these examples as just examples. He's, he's not out there looking for these to be the issues of the day. He's just holding them in front of us as ways to illustrate how we have turned off the pain and the problems of others. Scripturally speaking, our comfort and right to have things our way has stopped us from feeling enough of others' pain to have lost our sense of grief and anger over the atrocities going on around us. We're leaving so many hurting, least, last, and lost without a reaction let alone a blessing. Now, I know we are used to the old saying that pastors give you three points in a poem, right? Well, I'm going to ask you three questions and offer a promise. That's the deal today. First question, what's the message Jesus offers in response to the rejection of the hometown crowd. Well, he left, which seems a pretty good move given the situation, but he did not flee the mission. He saw no need to take a greater stand that day. His momentary rejection, while certainly disappointing, could not have been surprising. Most significantly, however, there is no spite in him. He's blunt, but he doesn't repay rejection with rejection. He's not looking for a better class of sinner to save. He just wants us to know that we can't define whom he loves or what he's going to care about. He doesn't call off Calvary. He goes to the cross for the people who strung him up on it, who drove the nails in his hands, who scourged his body and put the crowns on his head. He goes to the cross for you and for me. Despite our rejection, and even because of it, He takes our pride, our indifference, our hypocrisy, our bullheadedness. And what does he do but give us back love? It would not be his last rejection on the way to the cross. Jesus was human. Surely he felt the pain and the frustration of the rejection. But he gave it all back to God in forgiveness. Did he not say... Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Our response, thanks be to God, has never changed that message. Question number two. 
If repaying rejection with love is at the heart of Christianity, then could it be that rejection becomes a very special opportunity to test our resolve around the message? To love our neighbor as Jesus loved. To give our struggle and our disappointment to God. To seek God's will in prayer and more fully experience his peace. Jia Jiang tells of having feared rejection his entire life. It started when he was in first grade. His teacher, meaning to do a wonderful thing, had all 40 of her students. She bought little gifts and she got them all in a circle and said, when, when you announce the name, give them some compliments and then you go pick up your gift. 40 kids, what could go wrong? Well, the first 20 go, it's a, it's a lovely, wonderful experience. And the next 10 go, it's beginning to slow down a little bit with the compliments. And then there are three left, and he's one. And she says, aren't there any compliments? She said, oh, if you behave better next year, maybe there'll be some. She had no idea she was going to turn this little exercise and positive engagement into a roasting of three small children. But by golly, it ruled his life. He would get so excited about new opportunities and things he could do. And every time that six-year-old in him would win... So he went about figuring out how to overcome his rejection. He found a thing called rejectiontherapy.com. There is such a thing. It invites you to take 30 days and invite re rejection. Look for it. So he goes, you know, he's a high achiever. So what he does is think he's going to do 100. Why not? So the first day he goes and he ask the security guard at the front desk if he can borrow $100. And the guy says, no. Why? Well, he was, he was so anxious that he just said, okay, thanks, and ran. Now he filmed it. Thanks be to God, he filmed it. And he watched himself later and realized that the guy wasn't mean to him or menacing. In fact, he was kind enough to ask why. So he knew the reaction was his and not someone else's. Second day, he decided he would ask for a burger refill. He went to a restaurant, had a burger, and then went back to the desk and said, can I have a burger refill? And they said, what? <laughs> he said, you know, like a drink refill. Can I have a burger refill? And they said, man, we don't do that. He said, well, I love your restaurant. I love your burgers. I'd love you more if you had burger refills. And of course, they don't. But he began to grow. Third day, he went to Krispy Kreme and asked if they would make an Olympic version of donut rings in all the colors. The woman took him seriously, wrote it all down, Fifteen minutes later, she came back with it. This guy began to understand 
that the difficulties we have might be within us, not with the message. So maybe, maybe, here's question number three. Why stay in the difficult conversations? Why stay in the debate? Why risk being rejected? Because opposition, struggle, disagreement, and rejection will not end the inevitability of God's redeeming love or eliminate our place among God's people. The message, my friends, will always be the message. And it'll always be for you and for me and everyone else. Have we not learned that people who really change the world, who change the way that we live and the way that we think, are the people who were met with initial and often violent rejection? People like Martin Luther King Jr., like Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela, Jesus, our Christ. These people did not let rejection define the message. Their reaction after rejection defined themselves. And they embraced rejection because the message was more important than the pain. So here's the promise. We are all imminently aware of the special general conference beginning on the 23rd of this month regarding the debate, the 40-year debate of our human sexuality. Several folks have come to me and asked over the past few months, what do you think's gonna happen? I don't have a clue. I really don't. Who knows what's going to happen? I can't imagine that there won't be a few on one side or the other who would like to have run off the cliff. But I do hope they remember the message. That's what I pray for. So what's the promise? The promise is that on the Sunday after that conference, Stony Brook will still be here at 485 Cherry Bottom Road. The sun will have come up. We will worship. We will sing. We will praise God. And we will celebrate the God who loves us and saves us all. Jesus won't have removed his promise of love and we will heal and love and continue to serve a risen Savior. The message of love, the one that got Jesus run out of town, will still be our mission. And we'll keep on loving and we'll keep on serving right on this spot. That's a promise. Amen.